invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 as we come to a new section, a new chapter as well as a new section in Paul's letter. He's been talking about justification and now he's, he's going to begin talking about sanctification. God's work of making us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of chapter 6. We're going to be focusing on the first four verses. I don't want to be in a hurry through these, um, these verses because this is just really, really rich soil. And I think really fundamentally important uh, things for us to understand, if we're to grow uh, in joy and peace and believing and to grow in sanctification by the power of God. Uh, these are just essential truths for us to understand. And so we'll be taking our time, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. Let's uh, read then Romans chapter 6. I want to start just, it won't be on the screen, but I'm going to start two verses uh, before that so we catch a little bit of the flow of Paul's thought. Paul writes in 520, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we need your Holy Spirit so that we can understand the things of God. And thank you, Lord, that today it is your delight to teach us and to transform us, uh, to lead us along this pilgrim road uh, in faith and in Christ. Uh, Father, I just pray that today we would hear the voice of our Heavenly Father speaking gently and softly and truthfully to us that we might believe it and be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brother and sister, do you ever uh, get tired of yourself? 
You ever get weary of you? Just weary of your shortcomings, your, uh, your besetting sins, your weaknesses? Do you ever wish you could be different? Uh, specifically, better. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be fun to be better? Significantly better. Not just tweak here and there, but a real, genuine, better version of you. Wouldn't it be great to be able to just be move past, right? The shortcomings and the besetting sins that trip us up, the character flaws, the things that, um, that frustrate and wound the people in our life, the people that we love. Wouldn't it be great if we could be transformed just into a better version of us, someone that exudes grace and love and patience and kindness and wisdom? I hope there's something somewhere within you that that responds to that and says, yes, I, I would like to be that. If you're sitting here this morning and saying, no, frankly, uh, sorry, Pastor, but I really like me just the way I am. Well, we will pray for you. <laughs> but if you are a child of God, that's just not where you're sitting this morning. If the Holy Spirit is in you. The, the Holy Spirit, one of the things that he does is he convicts us concerning sin and places where we fall short of the glory of God, and, and he creates within us a desire to be better. We're hungry for something more, hungry for godliness. Well, the, the good news that we have in Romans chapter 6 is that God is in the business of transforming lives. God did not send Jesus to earth simply to forgive us our sin. God didn't send his son just so we could go to heaven when we die. The gospel is that God sent Jesus Christ in our likeness to, to live a life we could not live and die a death to atone for our sin. God sent Jesus for all that so that we could be radically transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. And that's the good news of the gospel that we're looking at as we come now to Romans chapter 6. We're beginning a new chapter and a new section. Uh, Paul has been talking since 321, chapter 321, Paul's been talking about the, the beautiful, glorious doctrine of justification. Uh, this, this truth that, in which God declares sinners, like you and me, he declares us to be perfectly innocent, righteous in his sight, not by virtue of anything that we've done, but by virtue of the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, imputed to us, received as a gift of grace and by faith alone. That's justification. And that declaration uh, from the mouth of God in the gospel to those who believe, that determines your identity and your destiny. It's the most foundational, fundamental truth of the gospel. But, as essential and foundational as that truth is, it is not the whole gospel. The gospel does not equal justification, or justification does not equal the gospel. It, there, there's more. God has not just given us the free gift of Christ's imputed righteousness, but in the gospel we have the good news that God is also, through Christ and by the power of the Spirit, transforming us making us into a glorious, better version of ourselves. 
And I hope that you're glad that's true. Isn't it wonderful that that's true? You see, it would be a lesser gospel, wouldn't it, if, if God just declared us righteous and then left us as we were? Who would, who would want to spend the rest of your Christian life with no change, no spiritual growth, no victory over sin, no greater understanding of God or love for God, no deeper capacity to love other people. Who thinks that sounds like a good idea? No spirit-filled person would, would accept that or would, or would find that good news. Every true child of God, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, by virtue of the new heart that was given to you, you can't help it. You want to grow. You want to be more like Christ. You, don't, you, you, you want to see Jesus, but you also want to be like Jesus. And, and it is precisely this transforming uh, work of God that Paul speaks of now here in Romans chapter 6. Uh, this is a fantastic chapter, but it's, it's not an, an easy one. Uh, there, there are categories and concepts here that are a bit foreign to us, and so we're going to just take our time. In fact, we won't really fully unpack even the first four verses here. I'm, I'm just not in a hurry uh, because this is really, really rich stuff, and I want us to take our time to dig into it and to suck all the joy and grace and truth that we can from it. Uh, Paul begins with a question. And so we're going to first look at the, uh, the question and then the response and the, then the reason. The question, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now that question flows naturally out of what Paul has just told us in chapter 5. That the law was given to increase sin and where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That, that God in some way has been at work in redemptive history to reveal the truth of sin and its ugliness and even to the law uh, makes the rebellion in our sinful heart come to life all the more. God increases sin so that the glory of his superabounding grace and patience will be revealed and God will be glorified in that. And so the question would, would just seem to come, well, then why not sin that grace may abound? Paul has said that uh, sinners are saved by God apart from works. I mean, three, chapter 3.28, we hold that a man is justified, declared righteous, apart from the works of the law. Fundamental uh, brick of the doctrine of justification. We hold a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And as we said, Paul's just explained that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so if that's true, if those, if those things are true, which they are true, praise God, well then why not sin that grace may abound? Let's make God look really, really good and, uh, and do that by sinning a great deal. Now of course, the question that, that Paul asks here, this is a question that's being thrown in his face by his Jewish critics. In, in their mind... This question reveals the preposterous error in Paul's message. If what Paul says is true, if God actually justifies the ungodly and says to the ungodly, 
you are righteous, which is exactly what Paul said. Well, why would anyone strive to be godly? What, what, what's the point? If salvation is actually by grace alone and through faith alone, apart from obedience to the law, why worry about obedience? That, that's the challenge the Jews are throwing into Paul's face as they listen to his message. And that is, it's not an idle concern. We know from the book of Jude, for instance, that there were people in the early church who were living exactly that way. Uh, Jude writes in, in verse 4 that uh, individuals have slipped in among you, he says, quote, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. It was happening. People were connecting the dots in that way. God justifies the ungodly? Well, then let's, let's sin that grace may abound. If, if, if our sin makes God look good, well, then let's just plunge ourselves into a life of immorality. The, the, the word that theologians use for that idea, that way of thinking, is antinomianism. Anti against, nomos, Greek word for law, against the law. People want nothing to do with the law of God. And the Jews, of course, are accusing Paul of exactly that. Paul, you're an antinomian. You don't believe in the law. You don't believe in obedience. You don't believe in the necessity for righteousness and, and holiness. Uh, your gospel encourages people to sin because your gospel removes any motive for obedience. If, if you tell people that they can get to heaven by grace alone and faith alone, well, you just, you just discourage them from doing their best, trying hard, pursuing obedience. That's actually one of the most common objections raised against the gospel throughout history. This was the charge of the Roman Catholic Church against the Reformers. As the Reformers rediscovered the apostolic gospel, the, the gospel that Paul preached, uh, the Roman Catholic Church said exactly the same. You're, you're just removing uh, the motive for obedience. If you tell people they can get to heaven by the righteousness of Christ... Well, what motive will they have to do good? It's, it's not an irrelevant question. It's actually a very good question. And it's uh, very important for us to understand how Paul answers the question. Let's look secondly at his response. Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I want you to first notice what Paul does not say. He does, he does not respond the way that we might naturally respond as people who know our Bibles and good Reformed Christians. Because I think we might say, well, by no means. God is still a holy God. You, you can't just live in sin, unrepentant sin. God is He's a holy God. You must obey him. We might point to the ongoing validity of the law and, and, and explain to people. While it's true that you've been delivered from the, the curse of the law, the condemnation of the law, you're not set free from the obligation of it. You, you're, you still have to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, and, and you still can't uh, 
you know, steal things or commit adultery or a lie. You can't worship idols. You, you, you still have to pay attention to the law of God. The law still stands. That's how I think most uh, of us would respond to someone asking that question. Now, of course, everything that we've just said is true, and Paul would agree that it's true. But it's very important for us to see that that is not how Paul responds to the question. It's not how he answers the question. There is something, you see, that has to be said first. There's a foundational gospel truth that, that has to be understood in order for a believer to actually experience the transforming power of God. Just telling people that God is holy is not enough to transform a life. Telling people that the law of God is authoritative and good and must be obeyed is not enough to transform a life. There are people who grow up hearing those things and believing those things all their life and yet not experiencing the transforming power of God. You see, if it were enough to just say, uh, shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means, God is holy and the law is authoritative. If that were enough, Paul would have gone there. But he doesn't go there. Why not? Well, because there's a deep gospel truth here that Paul wants us to see. And that is that it can't be, Paul says, that a believer will casually go on living in sin. And the, and the reason it can't be is because of this fundamental gospel fact that they died. We, we died to sin, that's what he says. And he follows that with a rhetorical question. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But it's a rhetorical question. Boys and girls, when, um, when someone asks you, a, when your mom says to you, how do you expect to keep your room clean when you constantly dump all your toys and clothes on the floor? It's not a question. She doesn't want you to think, to say back, uh, Mom, that's a great question, Mom. I'm going to need to think about that. It's a statement, right? And you understand it's a statement. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. When he asks, how can we live in it any longer? He's not uh, asking you to think about, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question, good thought. I'm going to have to wrestle with that one. He's making a statement. The statement is, you died to sin. You can't live in it any longer. You see, that's the charge. It's preposterous to suggest that we could just, a Christian would go on sinning in order that grace may abound because a Christian, well, has, has died to sin. Something's happened, and we've got to just be really careful as we unpack this. Paul is not saying that a Christian will not sin. Paul does not believe that Christians will um, be free from sin. Romans 7, he's, he's going to explain the experience of a Christian. The good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. Christians still sin more than they know. So he's not saying that, but, but what he's saying is that Christians, a true child of God, will not continue to live unrepentantly in sin. They will not embrace a life of sin. 
That's why the key evidence of a Christian is not moral purity in that sense. The, the, the key issue or evidence of a genuine Christian life is repentance. Repentance and faith and confession and, and battling with the sin. That's the evidence of, of a Christian. A truly com- converted person who has a new heart and filled with the Holy Spirit, that person will never say, hey, let's go sin that grace may abound. They'll never be that flippant or casual with sin. They can't be. That's his point. They can't be. Why not? And the answer is because the reason, third, we died to sin. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now we're going to take a couple weeks to just continue to unpack that idea, but but notice, first of all, that when Paul says that we die to sin, he's talking about a past event. He's not calling us to do something, to die to sin, mortify the flesh. That, that's a biblical thought, and, and we're called to do that, but that's not what he's saying here. This is, you died to sin. If you're a Christian, something happened in your past, you died to sin, past tense. And so you need to understand from the get-go as a Christian that Something radical has happened to you, as radical as dying. It's very important that we, we, we understand that this is, to be, this is a doctrine taught to us to be received by faith. One of the great temptations in the Christian life is to live by our emotions, to live by our experiences, to live by our intuitions and assumptions, rather than living according to what God has said. And that is particularly true when it comes to the battle with sin. The truth is, the fact is that most of us, when it comes to the battle with sin, we do not feel like we've died to sin. We've seen dead people, right? You go to the the funeral home and you do your visitation. When... When you physically die, there's no relationship that remains with sin. You're not tempted by it. You don't think about it. You don't, you don't say wicked words. You don't think wicked thoughts. You don't do wicked things. You've died to it, right? And we don't feel dead to sin. And sin doesn't feel dead to us. It's there. Every day it's there. Even when you sleep, it's there. It tempts us, or or, or, or we just find ourselves falling into it. So, So when Paul says we died to sin, the temptation is for us to say, well, I don't know what that means, but whatever it means, that is not my experience. It's just, it's a theological concept that really doesn't have any, it doesn't impact my life. My life is a day-to-day war. So we got to listen. Let, let Paul speak. Let the gospel speak. We need to receive this by faith because Paul is saying this is something that has happened to us, something that God has done for us. We died to sin. Now, Let's just unpack that a little bit further. What does he mean by we died to sin? What does he mean by sin? As I said, he doesn't mean we died to sinning. 
When Paul talks about sin, sometimes he talks about sin as a principle, a power, a dominion, a kingdom even. And so sin is it's, it's, it's personified. It's, it's, it's working or seeking to work its will in your life. And so Paul will say, let not sin reign, verse 12, in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin, the principle, wants to reign in your life. Verse 14, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Sin wants to rule your life. So the point is, though we still feel the presence of sin, we all do, we are no longer under the dominion of sin. There is a category called the dominion of sin, and that's where we were in Adam. That's where we are by nature. And Paul is saying, when you came to Jesus Christ, you were literally, truly removed from that category, and you were placed in the kingdom of his beloved son, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of Christ. That is objectively true. When, when, um, when you cross the border into Canada, it doesn't look much different. You got some, you know, different stores, maybe, you head through Ontario, a lot of Tim Hortons, but you got Tim Hortons here too. It just doesn't look that much different. And, and it would be very easy for you to go over, you know, go over the, the bridge there in Sarnia and get to the other side and say, well, this is just America. It looks exactly like America. It feels like America. Well, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how you feel. The fact is you're in Canada. You're not in America. You're in Canada, different country, different rules, different principles in that sense. That's, that's what Paul is trying to explain. There's an objective reality when you come to faith in Jesus Christ that you, you are no longer in this kingdom. Sin does not have dominion over you. Not because you don't wish it to, but because it's objectively true. We've been removed from that kingdom. And that is why a child of God cannot continue to live in unrepentant sin. If a child of God, if someone who professes to be a Christian is, is engaged in a life of unrepentant sin, that's why we, in love, go to them and say, brother, sister, your lifestyle is denying your profession. These two things cannot go together. You cannot profess to be a child of God, profess to be a Christian, profess to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, and be doing this. One of them has to go. And if you insist on holding on to the unrepentant sin, we're, we are going to then remove the, 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 the label we placed on you, Christian. Because you've denied the reality of your profession. It, it just, the two can't go together. But Paul is saying, you see, every true, every true child of God. Now again, people can get stuck here. And by the grace of God... Uh, through prayers and, and church discipline, people can get unstuck, right? It, it, we all get stuck in different ways. But what Paul is saying is that no true child of God, having been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the realm and dominion of sin, that person is not going to live their life in continual unrepentant sin. Why not? Because they've died. They died to it. And Paul talks about death in these verses. Well, we're going to hit this as we, as we continue to move forward, but he talks about death over and over and over in these verses. We've been crucified. We died with Christ. 
And, and that's the critical piece of it. You see, how did we die to sin? By union in the death of Jesus Christ. We die to sin because we're in Jesus. Notice what he says. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. I love the word all of us. This isn't a special category for elite believers. This isn't special forces. Every single child of God, every true believer, has been fully, forever baptized into Jesus. Now what does that mean? Well, to be baptized into Christ, it, it, it means that by faith you enter into Christ. You're united to Christ. You're bound to Christ, identified with Christ. You, you have this indescribably deep, rich, endless union with Jesus. It's Paul's favorite way of talking about what it means to be a Christian. He uses that phrase, in Christ, 73 times in his letters. It's in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul's conception of the Christian and a Christian life is rooted in our vital union with Jesus Christ. And our participation then in the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. We are united to all of Christ, not just his death on the cross. So that salvation is specifically a work of God in which God places you, the sinner, in Christ so that God defines you as belonging to Jesus and all of God's ways with you are founded on, his, uh, on your relationship to Jesus Christ, your union to Christ. All, God gives you all the benefits of the work of Christ. God gives to you all the benefits of his obedient life and all the benefits of his atoning death and all the benefits of his victorious resurrection and all the benefits of his triumphant ascension. That's what it means to be a Christian. We kind of got it backwards in, in, our, in our time, in our country. So when, when, when you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone who invited Jesus into their heart. Or some, a Christian is someone who gave their life to Jesus. That, that, that language is all sort of backwards. You're just starting with the wrong end of things. A Christian is someone that God has engaged. God has intervened. And specifically, God has placed this person in Jesus. Right? Ephesians 1, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So from all eternity past to all of eternity to come, if we can speak of it that way, a Christian is someone who's been in, in Christ. In Christ. All of God's ways to us are, are in Jesus. And, and just to try to understand, we have different relationships and unions. We, we belong or we're in a family. Or we're maybe in a marriage. But this goes way beyond that. This is more intimate than when you were in your mother's womb. You were nearly one body. This goes beyond that. It's deeper than that. This is our salvation in its purest form. 
that we belong to Jesus. It's, it's the great definitive reality of your life for time and eternity that you are in Christ. You're in Christ. And in that precious union, we have died to sin. And we have been raised to life. How? When Jesus died, and when Jesus was raised, it's an, it's an objective historic fact. It's not an idea. It's not a theology. It's not a theory. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is rooted in objective historical reality so that, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, if you believe in Jesus, you can know that when Jesus died on that cross, you died to the kingdom and reign of sin. You were set free. And Paul's going to talk about that in the following verses. And then when Jesus rose from the grave, you rose with him. So the sin has no longer dominion over you. You are now under grace because of your union with Jesus Christ. You've died to sin and come alive to God. Now that's true whether you feel it or not. And there will be days you do not feel it. It's why we need to believe it. Right? And live by faith. What has God said? This is true by the promise and the word of God. This is true by the objective reality of Christ's own death and resurrection and ascension. This is true by virtue of the fact that by faith we are united to Jesus. John Piper says, In our truest position and our truest identity... We are completely and finally dead to the guilt and the power of sin. This is decisive, unrepeatable, and unchangeable. And absolutely definitive for your life. We just have to believe it. John Owen, great uh, Puritan pastor, said there are two great challenges in pastoral ministry. Okay, just two. Two great challenges. One is convincing people who are under the dominion of sin that they are, in fact, under, under the dominion of sin. Right? To, to try to explain to someone or convince someone who's lost and without Christ and just living for the flesh, living for themselves, to try to convince them, friend, you are under the dominion of evil. Well, they don't believe that, that... They're just living their life as they please. They like their life. They enjoy their sin. They, they, don't, they don't see any need for salvation. Why would they need to be saved? So that's the first great obstacle in pastoral ministry, convincing people who are actually under the dominion of sin that they're under the dominion of sin. The second obstacle is this, convincing people who are no longer under the dominion of sin that they are no longer under the dominion of sin. It's true. Because you talk to Christians and you talk to yourself who are battling with sin and struggling with sin and failing and, and it feels like sin is reigning. It feels like they're under the dominion of sin. And, it, and we need to convince each other and to convince ourselves on the basis of the word of God that that, that feeling is not true. It's not true. I have died to the dominion of sin. I still live in the presence of sin. I still struggle with sin, but it does not have dominion over me, and it will not win in my life. 
But friend, we will not gain that confidence. We will not gain that conviction by looking to our life or our experience. We have to receive what God has said is true of us in Jesus Christ. By faith, you are in Christ. And by being in Christ, you have died to sin once for all. It will not reign or win in your life. And you have come alive to God. And we have to then believe it and apply it to your life. I want to encourage you this week to um, take this simple phrase and apply it to everything that you face this week, right? This is the phrase, I am in Christ. I am in Christ. Are you lonely, sad? I am in Christ, which means I've been united to Jesus Christ in such a profound way that I am not alone. God, my Father, is with me and loves me. Jesus Christ prays for me. The Holy Spirit indwells me. I am not alone. And though I am sad, I know that Jesus will never leave me and and all the riches of of Christ belong to me. I am in Christ. By God's own declaration. When you're being tempted, I am in Christ. And yes, my flesh is still weak, but my flesh will one day be put off. I am in Christ. And though sin feels natural to me, the fact is it is not natural at all. I now belong to Jesus Christ, and I am in him. And when Jesus died in that cross, Jesus gained my victory over sin and assured me that I will be a conqueror in him. I am in Jesus Christ. My life belongs to him. And one of the motives then for growing and striving is that we don't want to grieve him anymore. I was talking with a friend, and he was just relating to me a conversation he had with an an older godly man, a man who's passed on now, but um, he was just talking to this older man about what the glory of of heaven is, specifically being done with sin. And the the old man said, I am so ready to be done with sin. I don't want to offend my dear Savior anymore. That is a heart desire of every Christian. But when you're, when you're battling with sin, I am in Christ. I'm in Christ. When you doubt God's love to you because of some maybe great trial or just because of weakness, I am in Christ. By God's own word, I am in Christ. And nothing, nothing in life, nothing in death, not angels, not demons, not principalities or powers, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I belong to Jesus. And in that truth, in that reality, we have the power to live the Christian life. We have the power to walk, the power to battle with sin, the power to believe, the power to endure until that day, friends, when we walk glorified into the halls of heaven. From time to time, when people would come to Jesus with a great need, a dying daughter, a demon-possessed son, 
Jesus would say to them this simple thing. Only believe. Only believe. Let's pray. Father, what an astonishing thing you've done for us in Jesus Christ, that you've placed us in him. And that's what it means to be a Christian. So that we are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave his life for us. So that in his death we died, in his life we came to life. And are free to walk in newness of life, and one day we'll experience the full, refulgent glory of life in him, with him. Father, I, I pray you'd give us the ability to believe it. To turn away from our experiences and our feelings, our doubts, and to lay hold of this glorious grand truth that by faith we are in Jesus and belong to him. And that defines everything about us. And that is the determining force of our life and our eternity. So Lord, give us the ability to believe. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond by singing a song about this battle with sin. There's power in the, in the work of Jesus Christ. Let's stand in together and sing, Flee from Sin, Run to Jesus.
put my faith in the promise of his word. Let's do that and watch God transform our life. Now receive his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.